Philemon, the book of Philemon. And beginning in verse 1, we read as follows. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athea, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we humbly bow before you at this time. We thank you for the word of God, which is pure as silver tried in the fire seven times. It is food for our souls. And by your word, we are sanctified. And we look into it as a mirror, and it reveals to us who we really are. I pray, O Father, that today that you would speak to us through the scriptures. O Lord, show us and demonstrate to us through Philemon what the character of someone who is a truly loving Christian looks like. And I pray, Father, that as we look to the text today, that you would illuminate through your spirit to us the things you'd want us to see. Let us behold wondrous mysteries from your word. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be more like you. May you increase and may we decrease. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Within any family, there will always be differences and arguments. It's on. There will always be differences and arguments and even breakdowns within family relationships. Sadly, in some cases, you hear of brothers or sisters or parents and children who become so alienated and estranged, they don't talk to each other for the rest of their lives. Uh, we see this sometimes where children will run away from their families, and then they're never seen from or heard from again. While this is sad from the perspective of earthly families, it's even more sad when we see this develop within the household of God, because the church is also a family. We are a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. We're not family by blood, but family by the Spirit. And like all families, there are going to be times when we don't get along, and there's going to be times when things don't get well. There's going to be times where we have disagreements, where we have fractures, and that those fractures need to be healed. The book of Philemon is about a family. It is about a family who hosted a local church in their house, We believe that one of the members of that household may have been the interim pastor, as we'll see in a few moments. 
and how what was developing within their own family and household would have a direct impact on the church and therefore needed to be addressed. And that brings us to the letter of Paul to Philemon. We know from when we laughed off in Colossians that Tychicus, who was uh, um, sent by Paul to bring and deliver the letter uh, to the Colossians, his epistle to the Colossians, also sent a letter to Philemon. And this letter was taken by not only Tychicus, but also Onesimus, as we'll see, is a central figure in this epistle to Philemon. And so why would this letter that seems very personal be for included in the canon of Scripture, and therefore what relevance does it have to us? Well, we'll see over the next few weeks why it is important, because at the end of the day, what was happening in the household of Philemon was impacting the local church. And what this tells us is that relationships matter. Relationships matter in the local church. When relationships go bad, the church goes bad. And so therefore, what impacts and affects one person or two people can affect the whole congregation. And so as we look at this small book, we realize not only was it included in Scripture and in canon of Scripture because God willed it, but as we'll see, Paul intended this letter to be read publicly to the whole church. And so let's begin the text by looking at the salutation, and then we're going to look at the opening prayer and the three bullet points to the prayer of what Paul was praying for for Philemon. Number one, let's look at the salutation. Now, the salutation in verses 1 through 3 are customary in ancient Greco-Roman times. There's nothing unusual here that we haven't seen in any other of Paul's epistles. One thing that stands out for it, for though, in Philemon, which is distinct from his other epistles, is that Paul identifies himself in his introduction as a prisoner for Christ. And he's writing this along with Timothy, our brother. And so that raises the question, what do we mean when we talk about uh, uh, Paul, a prisoner of Christ? As seen in Colossians, Paul, this is one of Paul's prison's letters. He's writing this letter from prison Uh, which he had been arrested in Jerusalem and was in Caesarea awaiting trial. Uh, Paul used his time in prison very wisely, and it was used for the sake of ministering to the churches and writing many of the books in the New Testament. But why identify himself as a prisoner and not an apostle, not the birth bondservant of Christ? Well, some suggest that maybe by identifying himself as a prisoner for Christ, he's He's exerting his superiority over Philemon to get Philemon to do what he wants. As we'll see, there's an appeal and request in this letter. I'm not sure that I agree with that. See, the background to this letter and the whole theme of this letter is that Onesimus, who is delivering this letter, was at one time the slave of Philemon. Onesimus did his master wrong. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's believed that he stole from him. And after stealing from Philemon, he ran away and took off. However, in the course of Onesimus's life, he ran into Paul or some other evangelists, heard the gospel, was converted, became a Christian. Not only did he become a Christian, but he came very close with and formed a bond with the apostle Paul, even in his imprisonment. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Colossae. He's sending him back to Philemon, and he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. He wants him to free Onesimus and welcome him as a member of the church 
and, and basically wash away that which was uh, uh, held against him. Now, this is a lot to ask. And so, again, this goes back to the context. Maybe Paul wants to demonstrate his superiority to put pressure on Philemon to do what he requests. Rather, on the other hand, it could very well be, and I would agree with Martin Luther on this, that it's not that Paul is arguing from a place of superiority, but a place of inferiority. By identifying himself as a prisoner, he shows rather his humiliation. He's in a place of powerlessness. He's not in a place to tell Philemon what to do. He's in a place where he's locked up, he's in shackles, and in some way identifies with Onesimus because the very shackles that would enshackle Onesimus to slavery, Paul is experiencing as well as he's in prison. He lost his freedom. Why would he do this? Luther says Paul doesn't use force or compulsion as is within his rights, but he empties himself of his rights to compel Philemon to do what? To waive his own rights. You see, in his demonstration of humility, he's appealing for Philemon to also humble himself and to waive his rights. Why would asking him to free Onesimus and take him as a brother be a problem? Well, the truth of the matter is this could have jeopardized his status in Colossae. After all, Philemon most likely was a wealthy man. He owned a home. He hosted a church. He was a man of status and reputation. To have a runaway slave take off on you and you not deal with it and punish the slave would be embarrassing. It would be embarrassing to the local church. It would be embarrassing to the community. It would be embarrassing to Onesimus. And so, or rather Philemon. If someone cannot manage his home, if someone can't uh, take care and control a runaway slave, how can he possibly be respected in the community? So for Philemon, this would have been a threat. Now we get to the recipients of the letter. Although the book bears the name of Philemon as the primary namesake and recipient of the letter, Paul also addresses this letter to Aphia and Archippus and the entire church that meets in his house. Um, now who are Aphia and Archippus? Without going into too much detail, I believe the majority report of scholars is telling us that Aphia and Archippus are the wife and child of Philemon. And this would make sense because the possessive pronoun, your house, is plural. Now this would be important that Aphia receives this letter as well because being the woman of the house, it was her responsibility to manage the affairs of the house and keep all of the servants or slaves in line. Secondly, Archippus is described as a fellow soldier. Uh, in Colossae, it was Paul who appealed to Archippus to fulfill your ministry. Some have suggested that maybe Archippus was the interim pastor in this local church in the absence of Epaphras. We don't know. It's up to speculation. But it brings us to the bigger point. He, Paul is writing to all in the church in your house. There's a congregation meeting in this house church, and this was not a private matter, but a public matter. That's the purpose of this letter. Why was it delivered to the whole church? Why is it included in canon scripture? Because it shows us that these two households intersected in one. You have the household of God, and you have the household of Philemon, and they are both meeting in the same place. A broken relationship in the household of Philemon, and how he deals with that is going to have direct repercussions on how the rest of the church goes. And it's with that that the words grace and peace 
are not without meaning. Paul is not merely writing these words as a random greeting, but in light of the grace and peace that that Philemon and his wife and son received from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he needs to extend that grace and extend that peace to Onesimus, who is now a brother in the Lord. This raises the question then, when does an issue become a public matter? When is an issue a private and when is an issue public? Because in Matthew 18, we're given steps of church discipline. And we're told that when you're seeking to admonish a brother or sister in sin, you go to that person individually. And then if that person doesn't listen to you, you bring two or three brothers along and you establish the case. And then if after that they don't listen, then you bring it publicly before the church. And so the question then becomes is why is this dealt with so quickly on a public scale? And I think when we're dealing with matters of sin, the speed at which we admonish someone publicly depends on the gravity of sin and the effect it will have on the congregation. So several years ago, embarrassingly, we had a situation in Grace and Truth where our treasurer was found guilty of adultery. We did not have time to go through the process of step one and step two. There was defiance, there was rebellion, and we had to immediately bring this before the church because it was a public matter that brought reproach and disgrace and we needed to address it immediately. It was a sad day for Grace and Truth Church, and I don't look upon that day with with much delight. But it happens. And the gravity and seriousness of sin will determine the speed at which we affect it. For the most part, when we're dealing with sin, the elders work slowly over time, sometimes for months behind the scenes, appealing to people to repent and turn from their sins. And when there's a breakdown of communication and when there's hard-hearted rebellion, then it needs to go public. But sometimes the issue is just a characteristic uh, or, or uh, behavior that's affecting the church. The Bible says a little leaven leavens the lump. Paul did not stop to think when Peter was playing the hypocrite and eating with the Jews and not eating with the Gentiles in Galatians 2. Remember that text? Galatians 2.11, listen to what Paul says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The gravity of Peter's decision that day was immense. The church was at a critical crossroads. The the division between the Gentiles and the Jews was was big. People were, 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 this was a big debate within the church. And Peter had already aligned himself with a unified idea of Jews and Gentiles, all one under the gospel, under Christ. And his behavior for fear of certain Jews who may judge him, clearly the fear of man was dominating, not the fear of God. He capitulated, he fell, and his behavior would have long-lasting repercussions. Paul had no choice but to deal with the matter immediately, to set the, to set the story straight, to set the tone, and to deal with the issue that can have lasting effects on the church. 
Same as with Philemon. This is an issue that, if Philemon doesn't deal with it correctly, can have a devastating impact on the church that meets in his house. So with that said, that brings us to verse 4. Paul opens with a prayer for Philemon. And in this prayer, what Paul does is he elevates and he points out and he demonstrates all of the good things about Philemon. Philemon is not a bad guy. In fact, what we're going to learn here, Philemon is, is a man of outstanding character. He's a, he's, a, he's a Christian. He's a godly man. He's a man filled with love and filled with the Spirit. But in this error, he needs to be addressed. And so rather than Paul calling for the jugular and going right away to point out his flaw, Paul takes a great amount of time to address him, and by, remember, this is being publicly read, to, I wouldn't say embellish, but to lift up this man as a man who we could look to. And in the same sense, reminding Philemon that he needs to live up to the character that he's already demonstrated. So Paul offers his prayer with thanksgiving. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And so this prayer, Paul prays always. This is a man who prays without ceasing. And it's, it, it's something that is a reminder to us because Paul tells us, the Bible tells us, pray without ceasing. We ought never to lose heart or give up or become slack in our prayer life, because when we do, we show and demonstrate that we don't need God in our lives. It was Adrian Rogers who once said, God has an unlisted number, and he gave it to all of us, and he said, call as often as you like. We need to call upon the Lord, we need to pursue him and seek him. So what was the basis of Paul's prayer? Number one, he had heard of his faith toward the Lord Jesus and his love towards all the saints. This is a man of faith, and this is a man of love. He has great faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has a great love towards the rest of this Christian family and the community that meets in his house. I suppose if Philemon wasn't known to be such a good man, this letter would have been more difficult to Paul write. But Paul, in writing this letter, demonstrates that Philemon is a man who has been truly converted. When we talk about someone who has great faith and great love towards Christ and towards the saints, this is the characteristics and the evidence of true conversion. How do we know someone is truly saved? How do we know someone has truly become a Christian? Well, three things, three marks that we could look for, or evidences rather, to demonstrate who is truly converted. One of them, which is not listed here, but is, is that when you come to Christ and you're born again and the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are going to now have a repulsion and hatred for sin. The very things that you once loved and you basked in and you enjoyed, the things that thrilled your life and the activities that you found exciting are no longer going to be exciting. You are going to be repelled, you're going to be disgusted, and you're going to begin to hate the very sins that you once relished in. That's the first thing. Because what conversion is, it's a change of the heart. God changes the heart. And so the things that you once loved, you begin to hate And now the things that you once hated, you began to love. 
Prior to conversion, we all hated God, the Bible says. The Bible says we were without God and without hope in this world, living out our days in malice and hatred. But God, who is love, and God, who, who for the great love that he had, sent his son to die for us, pours out his love. As 1 John 4, 10 tells us, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Right? The love of God compels us. And as a result, our hearts are enlarged and we love God. And as a result of loving God, you cannot help but to love those who are made in his image, to love his children, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 4, 7, 8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You cannot say you're a Christian. You cannot say you're born again if you are not driven by a love, a phileo love, an agape love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. You care for them. You're concerned for them. And you want to do good for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this was Philemon. Philemon was a man. He was a loving man. And he was a man who loved God and he loved his, his, the members of the church and he, he loved those around him. The question is, if this is what Paul heard of Philemon, what does Paul, or rather, what do people hear about us? Right? He had heard the good report that Philemon is a man full of love. Do people say the same when they hear of us? I, I think so sadly today the church has a reputation of anything but being loving. We have a reputation of being hard as nails. We, we have a reputation of being difficult the world looks in and sees sometimes we divide and fight with each other over the silliest things. What do people hear about us? Do they know our great love and our great faith? Let me give you the story. There's a story of a husband who was not a Christian and his wife begged him to go to church for months. Finally, after her persistent pleas, he gives in and goes to church one Sunday during the sermon, his phone rings very loud and interrupts the sermon. He forgot to turn his ringer off. The pastor scolded him. The worship team afterward admonished him one by one. And the whole way ride home, his wife kept repeatedly lecturing him about how foolish he was. His friends and his acquaintances were disappointed and disgusted with him. He never stepped foot in that church again. That night, so frazzled by the whole incident and experience, he went to a bar. He had a bottle of beer there and going to grab it, the bottle fell over and broke and it spilled all over the person sitting next to him. The person who had fell on rushed towards him, expecting to be yelled at. He was surprised that the customer was more concerned to see if he was injured from the broken bottle. The bartender apologized and gave him a napkin. The busboy came and cleaned the mess. And the manager came out to see what happened. And after seeing the whole thing was okay, offered him a complimentary drink. She said, come on, man, who doesn't make a mistake? He never stopped going to that bar. Do we show the love of Christ? Do we make people feel... Welcome. Do we make people feel like it's okay? Do we demonstrate the grace of God that's been shown to us, to others? I tell you, Christians can do a good job of chasing people out of the church. 
rather than bringing them in. Secondly, prayer for greater understanding of fellowship. The next thing in Paul's prayer is to pray that Philemon would have a greater understanding of of the fellowship of Christ. Now, now this verse is a little tricky. The, The original Greek here is not too easy to interpret. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, the phrase there, which is the one that's the complication to interpret, is sharing of your faith. When I use that phrase, it sounds like we're to share the gospel or share our faith with someone. It it has an evangelistic overtone to it. However, the word there for sharing is the Greek word koinonia. The word koinonia, the original Greek, which literally means common, also is the word that is often used in Scripture to describe fellowship. Acts chapter 2.42, he talks about the, the fellowship of the saints. They were breaking bread, praying together, under the apostles' doctrine. This was, they were sharing all things in common. They were selling their property. There, there was this, this great unity, this bond, this, this partnership, this life that they had all participated in, this sharing, this common sharing of a life of Christ together. That's the word that's being used here when it says the sharing of your faith. And so therefore, and this is a little complex here, but the genitive denoting a person when it's followed by the word koinonia, it means that, fellowship, Christians sharing their lives with one another. But when the genitive of an impersonal noun is followed by the word, it takes a different meaning, usually translated participation or sharing. All this to say, I think the NIV presents a better translation of this complex Greek construction. And I read as this, I quote, and I pray that your partnership or fellowship with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Essentially, Paul is praying that Philemon would would become more effective and powerful in the church that he's, he's leading, that he's hosting, by having a deeper understanding of the significance of this fellowship of faith, this fellowship of the church that we have, this bond, this unity, and as a result, that it would be, it would be a realization of all the good things we have together. Bottom line is this. If you want to know the strength of a church's spiritual maturity, the social relationships will tell a lot. When a church is healthy, the lives of the people will be in close bond and unity. When a church is unhealthy, you will have an individualistic spirit dominating the church. You see, sadly for many people, their affiliation with the church is merely a voluntary association with people who just happen to share the same religion as I do. We come in, we get our dose, we go out. For some people, that's all that church is. That was never the way God intended church to be. We are a community. We are a commune of believers. And our lives are intertwined. And God calls us to this fellowship, this bond, this unity. It is a vital component to the life of Christ. It is a vital component to the life of Christian. Simply said, you cannot grow. You cannot be sanctified and grow in your walk with Christ unless you are in fellowship. 
When I first got saved, I was told that your discipleship or your sanctification can be pictured like a three-legged stool. You have prayer, reading the Bible, a Bible intake, and fellowship. Those are the three major legs. You take one leg off the stool, the stool collapses. So you can have all the prayer and Bible reading you want, but if you're lacking that fellowship, that intimacy, that that sharing of your life, that openness with one another, you're not going to grow. You're going to be alienated. You're going to be on your own. You see, Paul wants Philemon to have a greater knowledge of the depth of this fellowship and the good things that are a result of it. As a result, you'll be more effective. The good things are the blessings, the growth, the love, the encouragement, the strength, the power. The closer a church is, the more powerful they will be for the sake of the gospel. And that begs us to answer the question, are our attitudes and behaviors enhancing fellowship in the church or denigrating it? We could either enhance and and promote unity in the church or through our selfishness and through our individualism and our selfish ambition, divide a church. You want to see a divided church? You see a lot of selfish people who are living according to their own dictates. When you want to see a church that's united, it's about people who are united in the purpose and goal for the glory of God. That's, that's the whole point here. It is about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. Thirdly, his love serves as a refreshing influence to all in the community. So not only does Paul pray about, uh, that, about him and, and thanking God for the love and the faith that he has, not only is he praying for a deeper understanding of the fellowship and the implications of that, but he's reminding and, and, and he's being thankful for what a big impact Philemon was on the church. What does Paul say? He says, I derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Now, I, I thought of two things here. How is Paul deriving much joy? And how is he deriving a, a much comfort? That word comfort can be translated encouragement. It's the word uh, uh, parakletos. It's where we get the same word for Holy Spirit. It's the comforter. I, I believe this is talking about the encouragement. It's talking about the joy Paul's deriving from this man. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, it's saying he is a refreshing influence on the church. But I also believe that's not written here. I believe that he has personally ministered to Paul. Not everything is written out for us to see, but I think the implication is this man personally went out of his way to minister to Paul in his imprisonment, whether it was through sending of gifts, whether it was a visitation. At some point, he went out of his way, and this is true Christian love, to seek out those who are going through a difficult time and to encourage them. This is consistent with what we learn about Philemon. It says that he often refreshes others in the church. Others have been the saints. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. Well, what does that mean? Well, when we talk about refreshing something, we're saying at one time we were fresh, but then something went wrong. We got stale. Right? How many of you, when you first came to Christ, you felt fresh, you felt new, you felt on fire, and then a few years goes by and life gets difficult and the mundaneness of things kick in, and what do you do? You feel stale. 
You know, it's always an encouragement to me when someone comes along who's a refreshment to me. It's like pouring a cup of cold water on someone who's parched in the desert. There's that sense of a revitalization. And what I have found in my life is that as Christians, we could either be a source of refreshing to others, to bring life, to bring revitalization, to bring encouragement, to bring joy, or you could be a source of a burden and wearisomeness to people. There are some people who just weary you. They wear you out. They burden you. And there are other people who are a refreshment. We are burdened enough. We are wearied enough. We're wearied by our sins. We're burdened by the things that go on in our life. We're wearied and burdened by the, by the world we live in and the complexities and the chaos of it. When I come to church on Sunday morning, I expect to be refreshed. Amen? This is the one place you ought to be refreshed. If you're not coming to church on Sunday and you're not sensing a refreshing, what's wrong? The Holy Spirit should be ministering through the church and as you hear the word of God, your soul, your heart is refreshed. And that's what we do as individuals. We can be a source of refreshment to other Christians. We could be a source of of pouring the word. The word of God is a source of refreshing speaking positive things into people's life, and I'm not getting all hocus-pocus, the thought of positive thinking here, but I'm just, but realistically, some people are just geared to be more positive and uplifting, and some people are geared to be negative and discouraging. Pick the people you want to hang out with. Pick the people who are going to encourage you, who are going to enhance your walk with God, who are going to point you towards godliness, who are going to refresh you. If you hang around people who are negative and dismal and And discouraged all the time, you're going to become negative, dismal, and discouraged. What greater joy do we have than knowing Christ? This is the refreshing that we need. But notice the object of refreshing, and that's the hearts of people. This describes the inner man. And our hearts, and many times, can become tired. We need refreshment. And so I pray that not only as Philemon was, was uh, seen as a man who brought refreshing to the church, I pray that all the members and attendees at Grace and Truth Church would be sources of refreshing to one another. And the only way you could refresh others is if you're refreshed yourself in the Lord. He is the true source of our refreshment. Well, let me conclude as we meet the namesake of this letter, Philemon, we realize we're being introduced to a man who was well-liked, well-respected, and well-grounded in his Christian faith. He was well-respected and regarded in the community. He hosted a house church, and his family were godly people. But Philemon had to deal with a very uncomfortable situation. He had to wrestle with the reality that Onesimus was a child of God and he was going to be challenged to put his love to the test to forgive someone who did him wrong, to free him at his own expense and to embrace him as a member of the body of Christ and welcome him to the community. The next couple of weeks, we're going to see that's not that easy for Philemon. But yet at the same time, I believe and I believe and I I have confidence that he did in fact do this as his character would have indicated. And while there are 
There are separate issues here, obviously speaking to the evil of slavery and showing that that Paul himself, although not seeking to upend the Roman Empire's system of economy, saw that slavery in and of itself was an evil. And I believe that eventually he thought, and many of the apostles in early church thought, that slavery would one day be done away with. The bottom line is this. As Christians, it doesn't necessarily have to be a former slave. But you as a Christian are going to have people that do you wrong. Philemon was robbed. There are people who are going to violate you in your life. There are people who are going to hurt you. There are people who are going to smear you. There are people who are going to disrespect you. There are people who are going to gossip about you. There are people who are going to disagree with you and make a fool of you if you don't comply with them. And it's going to happen in the church. This is not a perfect place. We are a group of broken sinners who gather together to see a perfect Savior. One day we'll be perfect when we're in heaven, but in this world and in this life, you will be offended at some point as a Christian. That's not the question. The question is, how will you deal with it when it comes? How will you deal with the hurt? How will you deal with the offense? How will you deal with the insult? How will you deal with the pain? Are you going to hold it against the person? Are you going to fight? Are you going to be bitter? Are you going to be angry? History has showed us that many a church have divided over such things. And at the center of it all is self. When people exalt self over Christ. On the other hand... When you die to self, when you waive your rights and you see the person and majesty of Christ as superior to our own feelings, our hurts, and our pain, when you realize that he suffered more than anyone, that he was violated, that he was hurt, he was offended. The Bible says he was reviled, he reviled not, and he extended grace and forgiveness. The Romans didn't put Jesus on the cross, the Jews didn't put Jesus on the cross. You and I put him there. Our sins put him there. And he extends free grace to us all. Will we show that same grace to others? True Christian love forgives. True Christian love seeks unity. True Christian love promotes the gospel. True Christian love embraces even those who hurt us, forgives and offers reconciliation. You cannot know that love unless you know Jesus Christ, unless you're born again. So if you're here today, whether you're visiting, whether you've been here forever, the most important thing that you need to know is that you and I are all sinners. We are all rebels against God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all offended God. We've, we've violated his commandments. We've, we've insulted him. We've blasphemed him. But that God in his grace sent his son to die on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. And that punishment is eternity in hell, separate from God forever, bearing the weight and burden and penalty of our sins. But Christ took that penalty upon himself. He paid the debt in full. He satisfied the wrath of God. And he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. 
demonstrating that all is finished, it is done. The call now is to us to repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sins, repent from your rebellion, repent from your selfishness, repent from your pride, repent from your good works, and believe in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Put your trust entirely in him. Believe in him and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of eternal life. That is the life of God forever. What greater promises can we have than that? It's not until you come, become a true believer in Christ that you can have this very love that Philemon had and demonstrate such love even to those who offend us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege that we have to gather together for the sake of the gospel. We pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. We pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and that you indeed would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.